Thank you for tuning in to AWP's podcasts. The following recording you're about to hear is Freedom to Write, a panel discussion hosted by Penn American and Penn USA Centers at AWP's 2007 conference in Atlanta, Georgia, Saturday, March 3rd, 2007. This event is moderated by Joanne Leadham Ackerman and features discussions among Katusha Galetson, Larry Seams, and Joanne Leadham Ackerman. This panel discussion investigates how current affairs affect the rights of writers to practice their craft. What is the role of self-censorship in a culture of real or imagined threats to freedom of expression? This discussion will address whether First Amendment freedoms are at risk here at home. Join PEN America and PEN USA, the two United States Centers of PEN, for this discussion about the state of freedom to write. International PEN has been defending the rights of writers around the world for 85 years. We have up here, all of us, um, very active members in PEN, at various levels of PEN. Um, and Katusha, why don't you introduce yourself from USA? Uh, my name is Katusha Galitsin. I work for the Penn USA Center, which is the Western Center of Penn in the United States. And um, I am, do the Freedom to Write work. Okay. And I'm going to let Larry introduce himself, and then I'll tell you who I am. I'm Larry Seams, and I do the Freedom to Write work and the international program work at the Penn American Center in New York. And I'm Joanne Leadham Ackerman. I'm the International Secretary for International Penn. Um, International Pen has 44 centers in 101 countries. Um, two of our very largest, in fact, our very largest center is American Pen in New York, and Pen USA on the West Coast is one of our, our very large centers as well. Um, so we're representing the international and the um, domestic. So today we thought we would talk about, I'll, I'll sort of set the framework, if I may, globally on, on some of the issues and what we deal with, and then. Katusha and Larry will talk specifically about how these link specifically in the U.S. and how very important it is what happens in the U.S. Um, is to what happens globally. Because for years, the standards of human rights and freedom of expression um, have been in part set by the U.S. Our, our um, Constitution, our protection of freedom of expression have been very important globally. So if that starts to erode, it has, it has a global effect. Um, in, in the many talks that I've given over the years um, on behalf of Penn, I find myself returning to the image of a bridge. And the imagination is a bridge to people and to cultures. And literature and writing, of course, is the vehicle that carries us across that bridge. And I see this in cases over and over. Um, one of the cases that always has stuck in my mind is of writers in the Western Sahara, uh, back when that area of the world, the writers were imprisoned in just the most dire conditions with um, more writers in a cell than could sleep. So they, some would have to stand up while the others slept and they alternated. And many of the writers in those conditions went insane because of those conditions. But the story I always remember from that time was of some writers who would take the one bar of soap they were given each month and on their trousers write poetry. And then they would memorize their poetry and they would, with the coffee grounds they would find when they were released into the yard for one hour a day, they would write on scraps of paper their poetry and they would memorize each other's poetry. And they talked about how they really lived and survived by living in their imaginations. And there were sets of those writers who talked about 
how they survived because they lived in Paris in their minds. And they just would, when they could talk to each other themselves, they would just go in their minds to Paris and live there. So we all know as writers the importance of the imagination. But when a writer is imprisoned or censored, the intent is that he or she can no longer construct these bridges. And certainly when a writer is killed, the intent is that the bridge will be blasted apart. So I thought I would start with four cases. On October 7th of this past year, 2006, my phone rang at 7.30 in the morning, and it was International Pen's Writers in Prison Program Director. And she was calling to tell me that Anna Politskaya had just been killed in Moscow. Now, Anna was a journalist who had challenged Putin on the um, situation in Russia and the involvement in, Ch in Chechnya. She was a writer that many of us knew and had worked with, and we all had great respect for. In January 19th, this past January, 2007, we were about to begin our International Pen Board meeting in Vienna when a call came from Istanbul, and her aunt Dink, we were told, had just been shot and killed outside his newspaper in Turkey. Dink was a writer and an editor of an Armenian paper and again, many of the members of PIN had worked with him, particularly on issues of freedom of expression in Turkey. I'll go back a decade. November 10th, 1995. At that time, I was chair of International PIN's Writers in Prison Committee, and I was standing outside the Nigerian embassy in Washington with many others when the word came out that novelist and activist Ken Sarawiwa had been hanged that day in Port Harcourt. And then finally, February 13, 1989. At that time, I was president of Penn USA West, and I was on an airplane, and I was reading the New York Times and reading that Salman Rushdie's novel, Satanic Verses, was being burned in Birmingham, and that people in Pakistan were protesting the book. The next day, a fatwa was issued on Rushdie. What was a fatwa, we all asked at the time? as we tried to grasp the implications of a head of state ordering the murder of a writer wherever he was in the world. Now, most writers active in Penn's Freedom to Write work can tell you where they were when the news broke on each of these cases. I know Larry can, because we, <laughs> we, we worked together back then. And Katusha is a bit younger, but I'm sure she can tell you about Dink and um, Politskaya. Because the lives of these writers and many others have been critical in the struggle for freedom of expression worldwide. The murder of a writer, the shutting down of a publishing house, the torching of a newspaper reduces the space in the world where ideas flow. And that affects all of us. The instinct to kill the writer, or the bearer of a story one doesn't want to hear, is ancient. But the organization of citizens around the world to protect the writer is modern. The human rights movement itself is the creation of the 20th century, and International Pen is one of the very first, if not the first, human rights and freedom of expression organizations. It was founded in 1921, just after World War I, to connect the writers of different nations. And very soon, the writers of that time found that it was necessary to stand up for the writer's right to practice his or her craft. Because while writing is an individual act, the writers recognized the protection came from the collective voice of writers on behalf of each other. 
Members of Hungarian PEN at their Congress in 1932 protested the suppression of literature in Hungary. And in 1933, at the Dubrovnik Congress of PEN, the members condemned the burning of books in Germany, and at subsequent gatherings protested the imprisonment of German writers. In 1937, members sent a telegram on behalf of the poet Federico Garcia Lorca in Spain, but it arrived too late, and he'd already been executed after his arrest. But shortly after that, Penn's protest over the arrest and death sentence of Hungarian novelist Arthur Kessler resulted in his release. Penn preceded amnesty by several decades, and when amnesty went to set itself up, and it was also um, founded in London, the members, the founding members, went to Penn to see how Penn did its work. Now, writers are silenced in many ways, imprisonment, threats, harassment, torture, and killing is the most desperate of means. But Penn offers an echo and a countervoice for those silenced. Through the action of its members in these 144 centers in 101 countries, Penn campaigns and lobbies governments it lobbies on behalf of writers whose only offense has been the nonviolent expression of their ideas. And through its Writers in Prison Committee, International Pen advances cases and issues at the United Nations, where Pen has consultative status at UNESCO and at the Human Rights Commission. And Pen members also themselves individually write to the writer, to the writer's family. They write to the officials in their own countries in protest and then in the country where the writer exists. They stage events, and this is very important, where the works of these writers who are imprisoned or killed are highlighted so that their voices are not silenced. This past year, Penn has tracked about a 1,000 cases around the world of killings, arrest, imprisonment, attacks on writers, court proceedings against writers, and approximately 140 of these are what we call main cases. Where, actually, where people actually take on minders work, and we'll, we'll be talking about that, to work on these cases. Penn itself is a global network in which the action of one individual connects and supports another. I often think of it, I often sort of map it in my mind, is this sort of crisscrossing corridors of concern, I'm sorry for that alliteration, um, around the world. For example, writers in Poland work on the cases of writers in Vietnam, because they reason they knew what it was to live under a communist system. So they often take on the cases of writers that are in, in um, communist and totalitarian systems. Writers in Ghana and Scotland have taken action for the release of writers in China. PIM members in Australia and Germany and Italy work on behalf of writers in Cuba. Writers in Mexico and Japan have protested the imprisonment and laws affecting writers in Turkey. PIM members in Canada, the U.S., and Sweden have spoken up for writers in Iran and Myanmar, writers in England and Norway for those in Belarusia. And all of these centers of PIN work on writers in all of these countries. I'm just highlighting some of the connecting, connecting dots of cases. I sometimes imagine this as hundreds of hands around the world sort of pushing up their bit of the sky to lift the horizon. PIN's work also attests to the power of the individual and to a particular version of globalization, which advocates the global right for free expression, a right that supersedes national restrictions. And I think that's the best 
look at globalization, when we can take the idea of rights as being global. A precursor to Article 19 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, PIN's charter states, PIN stands for the principle of unhampered transmission of thought within each nation and between all nations. When the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was formed, again, its formers went to the Penn Charter of the many documents they studied as they developed that. Recently, we've seen a growing number of arrests of writers who uh, work on the internet, particularly we've seen that in China. And we've also seen the killing of numbers of writers, especially journalists around the globe. Usually, Penn members have not met the writers for whom they're working. I'd like to quote a line of a poem. Can the flapping of a butterfly's wing in Brazil stir up a hurricane in Beijing? That was written by a Flemish member of Penn who several days after the murder of Front Dink received a postcard from Dink with a butterfly on it. I've just recently returned from Hong Kong where International Penn held an Asia and Pacific Regional Conference in which writers from mainland China Hong Kong, Taiwan, and abroad, along with writers from many of our other Asian centers and from America and Europe, all met um, to discuss literature and free expression. The conference was historic. <clears throat> it was attended by 15 writers from mainland China, including several leading dissidents. But there were 20 mainland Chinese writers who weren't able to come. They were either not given visas or they were visited by the security police and warned not to come. <coughs> A few of them, in spite of those visits, who had visas, tried to come anyway and were stopped at the border of Hong Kong and turned back. This was um, quite interesting, especially at a time when China is saying that it's um, opening up on freedom of expression and telling foreign journalists they're free to come and go. So you won't be surprised to know that there was great interest in our conference. We set empty chairs on the podium with the name of the writers who were supposed to be there but had not been able to come. And we got extensive press coverage because of that, because it really was a barometer of where China is on freedom of expression. Um, in 2008, of course, with the Olympics coming, China's trying to um, open up, or at least say it's opening up the spaces for freedom of expression. And Penn really sees this as a great opportunity for not only are we a link to writers, but we're a wedge. And we're a wedge that can go into a space to keep it open and try to keep open up the space that's already there. And I can assure you that's what we will be doing in the, in the year ahead. And the Chinese dissidents who did manage to get to this conference assured us that their protection came because of the attention and the voice that the international community gives to them. Can the flapping of a butterfly's wing in Brazil stir up a hurricane in Beijing? Let's watch and see. Perhaps it can. Thank you. Um, well, there are a lot of different ways that Penn works in order to, uh, in order to fulfill its mission. I'm going to talk about a, a couple of specific ones, including um, a campaign that is going on right now uh, about criminal defamation laws. Um, the Writers in Prison Committee and a lot of its member centers have signed on to this campaign uh, attempting to decriminalize defamation and insult. Um, so we're all on the same page. These laws exist all over the world and are, are most closely related to our slander and libel laws here in the United States. 
course, our slander and libel laws are dealt with in the civil courts, which is uh, part of what we're trying to accomplish. Um, Penn's calling for the repeal of laws that treat defamation as a criminal offense and is also saying that the word insult is too vague to belong in any legal code. Um, without the international network provided by Penn, it's easy for us to overlook the fact that legal systems in other countries don't provide the protections that we enjoy. For instance, in many legal systems, you can be convicted under defamation laws uh, for speech or writing that is true and is legitimate criticism of public figures. And in many cases, it need only hurt their feelings and not their public reputations. They can decide that they have been defamed. Um, it's also possible to be convicted of defamation against uh, the nation itself or symbols of the nation. For instance, there's a, a poet in Mexico um, who is on trial in criminal court for a poem in which he uh, suggested, well not suggested that people do it, but in which he used the symbol of um, using the Mexican flag as toilet paper. And uh, the, the laws are almost, just so you understand the, the wording of the way that these work, I'm going to read you a couple of the, a couple of the laws uh, in different areas of the world. In the Congo, and there's somebody on trial or in jail under every one of these laws. Um, in Congo, you can be arrested for attack on the honor of the head of state. In Iran, spreading propaganda against the system. In Jordan, belittling the dignity of the Jordanian state. In Turkey, which is one of the worst offenders, uh, insulting the republic, insulting Turkish identity, or insulting the memory of Ataturk. Um, in, and to give you an example of, of how vague and broad a lot of these laws are. I'm going to read you one from Egypt, where you can get in trouble for deliberately diffusing news information, data, or false or tendentious rumors, or propagating exciting publicity if this is likely to disturb public security, spread horror among the people, or cause damage to the public interest. And public interest, obviously, as defined by those in charge. Um, so the, the vague nature of these laws leave them wide open to abuse and are a huge problem. So uh, the debate in these countries is stifled and the chilling effect of these laws uh, for people who are afraid to be brought um, under, uh, who are afraid to be convicted or arrested for them is obviously far reaching. So uh, because it is Penn's mission to prevent, uh, to protect the flow of literature between and among countries, these laws form a huge threat. So the question is, with all of these places, with all these centers all over the world, what do we do to affect this global problem? Um, in a campaign such as this, Penn works both to help the individuals who have been stifled and chip away at the system that allows the kind of abuses. So our work runs down parallel tracks of individual cases and the larger problem. Um, Joanne mentioned Hrant Dink. It's widely believed that Harant Dink was killed because his very public trial and his conviction on charges of insulting Turkishness made him a target. And these laws in a lot of case in a lot of cases encouraged dissenters to be viewed as criminals and even traitors. Um, and that label cost Harant Dink his life. So there are individual campaigns, individual cases in which we launch letter writing campaigns which land a huge number of appeals on the desks of public officials and centers hold events and have publicity campaigns to raise awareness about these issues. Um, and in a lot of cases, uh, 
the the cases that draw international attention are much more likely to be dropped as a matter of PR. Um, this campaign focused on cases in Ethiopia, Mexico, China, Egypt, and Turkey as the main cases that we were focusing on. Um, and then for the larger issue, Penn works with NGOs and governments to pressure other governments to change their laws, which is obviously the larger goal so that you know this, these patterns end. Um, many of these countries have signed on to um, the ICCPR, which is the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, um, which is a uh, binding UN treaty that was formed out of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And one of the articles of this document guarantees freedom of expression. And Penn makes the argument that these countries are in violation of this treaty by prosecuting these cases or by even having these laws on the books. This campaign is an example of the power that this network that International Pen provides. And without the bridges and connections that Joanne referred to, people in the countries where dissent is frowned upon, to put it mildly, would not have any advocates. Uh, they, because of the laws there, prevented from speaking for themselves. Um, it's important, obviously, for us to defend our First Amendment rights. But if, as a reader, you've come across, uh, for instance, the work of Elif Shafak or Lydia Cacho, or if you've ever gained a fuller understanding of the world through the work of international journalists, then you understand that our responsibility to the writers in other countries is as much a selfish act as it is a humanitarian one. Um, so that's, that's an example of how International Pen works on campaigns, on broad campaigns. Do you, should I talk about the Minder program or do you want to do? Okay. Um, the, the other focus as uh, these, as International Pen follows all of these individual cases around the world, um, the main cases are adopted by various centers and further by various members of the center. There's a Minder program in which uh, members of our center take a particular interest in a particular case that we're following. In our center, we've adopted members uh, who are in prison in Uzbekistan, in uh, China, and in Ethiopia at the current time. And when I when I try to explain, I it's difficult work. And I have a joke that when I explain my work to some of my friends, I say that a large chunk of my day is spent writing letters that generally boil down to Dear King Unpronounceable of Far, Far Away, please stop putting writers in jail. It's completely not cool. I'm going to continue writing you letters until you stop, which is a very cynical way of looking at it. But um, there, there are long days in this work. The, the, the part that that doesn't talk about is, is the fact that um, the, writer to, the connection that writers have with each other is a very powerful thing. And although I can't begin to imagine what it's like to be imprisoned for your work, I know that, uh, I know that that connection is valuable to people in this situation. So individual members from our center will take on individual cases and attempt to create a dialogue. They, to the best of our ability, we will try to get them you know, addresses that they can write letters to the prisoner themselves, and in cases that that's not going to work, to the prisoner's family. So, and in, in a lot of prisons, obviously, the letters uh, can't get to the can't get to the prisoner, or the prisoner's letters can't get out again. But you know, as we know, and as anybody who's any, who's done any work for for Amnesty or any of these organizations know, 
even if the letter doesn't reach the person, it reaches the jail, and people know that there is an international light being shined on the case, and that does a lot to improve people's conditions. Um, so the that connection between two writers can exist even even in the worst of circumstances, um, and that's yeah, that's the. Uh, the purpose of the Minder program, as, as well as, of course, the, the Minders um, do work with the office in terms of contacting, um, you know, members of Congress in our case, and and continue to write the appeal letters to the various heads of state and decision makers in other countries. So that's how we get them from all sides. Yeah. Just as a bridge to Larry, um, when when you, <laughs> I like your summary, dear King, unpronounceable, far far away, but I, I very I remember. A specific case when there were some journalists put in prison in Tonga. I had to look up where Tonga was, and, and letters were written to the king of Tonga. And I thought, imagine this king of Tonga. He's suddenly receiving letters, which he was from from Brazil, from Mexico, from the U.S., from Norway, from from Sierra Leone, about this journalist that he put in prison literally 24 hours ago. Well, I, I can report back that within 24 hours, that person was out of prison. Now, now the the the, the government officials have gotten sophisticated too, with the internet and everything. So they've gotten a little inured to this. But this was back when you know he must have. Where did these come from, and how do they know that I just put this journalist in prison? So, Larry, I, I want to talk about the situation for free expression in the United States, just because it really has complicated our work as pen members in the United States as we try to work on international issues. I mean, it's you know now we're sending letters to to oppressive dictators who you know have actually people in their in their foreign ministry will write back to us and cite abuses by the US government as you know things that we might ought, ought to be concerned about first so I want to talk about free expression in the United States but I want to do so by starting back in Turkey for one second um, both both Joanne and Katusha talked about the murder of Hrant Dink, and I just want to explore for a second the dynamic of that murder because I think it's really, I've been thinking about it a lot because it, it really reveals a lot about the mechanisms of how censorship kind of works within a society. There's this law, Article 301, which makes it a crime under Turkish law, insulting Turkishness to insult the idea of Turkish identity somehow. And, you know, all of the major prosecutions of writers, it's been used to prosecute some four dozen writers in the last two years. None of those prosecutions were initiated by the federal government. They're all initiated by local prosecutors, many of whom are connected to sort of ultra-nationalist political parties. And they're doing this for a very specific reason. That is, they are trying to embarrass Turkey internationally as, as part of Turkish, Turkey's negotiations to be part of the European Union. So these are very high-profile trials. They know exactly what they're doing. And, and they sort of, the trials are kind of a, 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 a very public theater performance for them in a way. You know, they have these trials, the writers come, and ultranationalist mobs gather outside of the courtroom and inside of the courtroom. And, you know, over the last two years, there was sort of this increasing atmosphere of violence. You know, during Hrant Dink's trial, he was spat on, people threw objects at him from the gallery. Um, you know, Orhan Pamuk's trial, there was also an angry mob. They had to sort of shut down the courtroom, and he had to stay with his you know, lawyers in the courtroom for an hour before they would let him leave. So there was this sort of increasing atmosphere of violence. People in the society sort of get the message. Um, you know, the young people who, the young person who eventually murdered Hrant Dink, it was, you know, part of a group of people that 
apparently had issued some 17 very explicit death threats that the government did not respond to. So it's this dynamic sort of between official, the, the legal official position of the government, which is to have this law on the books, and then the actual sort of mechanisms or dynamics of repression, which are sort of factions within the society and really mobs in some ways, you know, who are sort of carrying out these things. I've been thinking a lot about this. We were in Turkey a couple of years ago, and one of the Turkish journalists, who's sort of a lifelong advocate for free expression in Turkey, had this kind of interesting paradigm. He said, 25 years ago, free expression was a civil, civil rights issue. You know, so if you had a public demonstration about free expression in the streets, the people were there demanding more free expression. You know, the people in the barricades were asking for more free speech. He said, now, more than likely, the people who are demonstrating in the streets on a free expression issue are advocating less free speech. You know, they want, they want less. They're trying to shut somebody up. And it's a very, very interesting model to think about. Think about the Danish cartoons. Think about, you know, there was a theater performance in a Sikh, the Sikh community in, in England that was shut down by, by the Sikh community itself, which found the content of the play offensive. Think in the United States on the level of sort of local school board book bannings, you know, sort of same thing, organized efforts by certain people to say less speech, not more. And I was thinking about that this week because there was kind of an interesting case in Michigan. In Howell, Michigan, the school board that was sort of spurred by an organization called the Livingston Organization for Values in Education, LOVE is its acronym, a group of parents and other community members, they challenged the, 11th, the use of the bluest eye, the black boy, and Slaughterhouse-Five in the 11th grade curriculum. Very typical kind of local book banning case. Um, the school board first banned the books and the national organizations like Penn, we wrote letters, and, and then the, you know, the, the school board, to its credit, convened a sort of you know, curriculum committee that reviewed it, and the school board voted five to two to reinstate, reinstate the books in the curriculum. Usually, end of story, usually, right? But interestingly, one of the love members went and filed a complaint with the local county prosecutor, the state attorney general, and the U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan. This was passed this past week charging that the books are obscene and child pornography under U.S. law. That ought to be the end of the story because U.S. law on obscenity is extremely clear. What, is it, you know, what does it take to make a book obscene? It has to appeal to prurient interest. It has to describe sexual conduct in a patently offensive way. And it has to lack serious artistic, political, uh, literary, or scientific value. You know, so any prosecutor should get this complaint and say, it's not even a matter for discussion. The, the, the U.S. prosecutor, not the county, not the state, the U.S. prosecutor for the Eastern District of Michigan has referred the case to the FBI to, to read these books and to investigate whether they, they, they're obscene under U.S. law. It's a pretty flabbergasting turn of events, you know, and it suggests that there's kind of a great confusion about free expression in the United States. And that's sort of corroborated by statistical information about how Americans feel about the First Amendment these days. There's an annual study of First Amendment attitudes. And here's some statistics from the 2004 study, which is the most recent one that's out. 44% felt that individuals should not be permitted to publicly express opinions that might offend religious groups, 44% of Americans. 63% said they shouldn't be uh, permitted to express opinions that might offend racial groups. 41% said newspapers should not be allowed to freely criticize the U.S. military about its strategy and performance. And then a parallel survey of teenagers 
Only 51% of teenagers thought that newspapers should be allowed to publish freely without government approval. That's a staggering statistic. Isn't that amazing? Um, and you know, I, I ask myself a lot, how did we get here? And you know, that's sort of a separate discussion, but I think it comes from, I, I like to think of the 1990s as the don't go there era of American culture, you know? And it was, sort of, it was sort of from the right and the left, there was real pressure on, you know, there were kind of mobs in the street on free speech issues from both the right and the left in the 90s. The right's trying to block obscenity and, you know, sexual art. And the left has sort of political correctness, campus speech codes kind of things, you know? So the, the speech is narrowing from both sides. It's a dangerous mix when you introduce 9-11 and state security and a government that's skillful, as all governments are, in this interplay between official censorship and sort of mob organization. So I just want to talk just a couple more minutes, if I can, about what's really going on in the United States in terms of hard censorship since 9-11. Um, one of the first acts of censorship by the government after 9-11 was to prohibit the news media from taking photographs of coffins of returning servicemen from Afghanistan and, and, and Iraq. And the, the explanation that they gave for this was a cultural one, not a political one. This was out of sensitivity to the victims' families, right? We had to be sensitive. It was a matter of privacy and sensitivity. This is not a political issue at all, they said. This sort of same argument came to bear when Alberto Gonzalez was being, uh, uh, what had his nomination, or uh, Senate hearings for his nomination to be Attorney General. And they, they would not allow photographs of Abu Ghraib torture to be displayed during the hearings. And the explanation that they gave was because Gonzalez's children were in the room. And this would be disturbing to children. You know, so that they effectively censored a conversation about the, the largest you know, political issue, I think, for an attorney general designate that there could possibly be. And they did it big, out of sensitivity for the fact that there were children in the room. I had sort of a personal experience of this right after the hur Hurricane Katrina, about three days after the Federal Emergency Management Agency issued a decree that the news media would no longer be allowed to photograph dead bodies in, in the floodwaters. And, you know, the news media protested, and I got a call hours later from Reuters asking for a comment from Penn, and I said, well, Penn, you know, absolutely opposes this. It's hard to imagine how you report a story about death when you can't photograph death. It doesn't make any sense to me. That, or, that quote was posted on Reuters uh, uh, online at about four in the afternoon, and within a half an hour, I started to get hate mail. And I got about 100 messages of hate mail, all that said exactly the same thing, which it turned out because the, 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 me the message had, you know, my quote had gone on to sort of right-wing blogs as an example of, and they all had, they got, they got their talking points, was that this was a matter of, of decency. I got a couple of, you know, I was appalled by your quote. That to me is not freedom of expression. This is respect for the dead. You know, people said, did your parents not teach you decency? Somebody wrote, you are one sick bastard. I wish you had family floating in the waters in New Orleans. Or better yet, you floating in the waters of New Orleans. Vultures like you are what's wrong with the world today. We do not need animals like you in our world. I was a little rattled by that, I have to say. I was, you know, that, I found that rather nerve-wracking. And, and, you know, and, and this is what members of the news media are routinely subjected to. You know, people are always getting hate mail that's sort of orchestrated like this. Um, as a writer, I think it's important for all of us to always be asking ourselves the question when we sit down to write, you know, what could I write today that would get me killed? What could I write today that would get me arrested? What could, write, what could I write today that would get me beaten up, you know, ostracized, ignored, 
things like that, right? And I think the answer to those questions is a growing list of things in the United States. And you know, just I want to close by looking at what's specifically happening to journalists in the United States. You know, we've had a surge in subpoenas and, and prosecutions of journalists in the last two years. Um, and one of those journalists who's always um, under the gun is James Risen of the New York Times, and he sort of described recently in a Penn program, he said, in the past there was a kind of gentleman's agreement between the government and the press. They knew that they conduct, could conduct leak investigations of our stories, but everyone also knew that those leak investigations never went anywhere. There was a sporting element to it, but the sporting element has been taken out, and now it's deadly serious. You know, we now have one blogger who's served the longest prison sentence of any journalist in the United States, Josh, Josh Wolf. At one point last year, we had about two dozen journalists who were in the middle of contempt proceedings. All, if, if, if so many of them had already received guilty verdicts and they were on appeal, if they had all gone to jail, the United States would have vaulted into the top three list of countries with imprisoned writers around the world. We would have been just right up there on the, on the top, about second or third on the list. It's especially worrisome in national security cases because you, you have this kind of dangerous intersection of an increasingly secretive government and a press that is increasingly reliant on leaks from government, specifically government employees who are witnessing illegal things that government is doing that they can no longer support and are going to the press. This is who is telling James Risen about the National Security Agency wiretapping. It's NSA employees who know that this is illegal and they've been going to the press for months. And you have cases where, for instance, Richard Esposito, and Brian Ross and Richard Esposito for ABC News who were reporting on the secret prisons in Europe. They found out from a leak also from the FBI that, that the FBI had got, secured their phone records to find out who they were talking to um, at, at the CIA about the secret prisons. Um, and without a warrant, without any kind of legal means, they had had their record search. Uh, Risen and Lichtblau, who worked for the New York Times, when they broke the story about the secret, the banking monitoring in Europe, they were threatened by members of Congress with prosecution under the Espionage Act. Now, there's never been a, a successful prosecution in 215 years of U.S. history of the press for, for violating government secrecy, never once. But Gonzalez has said that he thinks it's viable that, that, could, that those prosecutions could go forward. Now, interestingly, it's not necessary that they go forward because what happened at the same time was, you know, actually most legal experts think it would get tossed out of court, that the Espionage Act is unconstitutional under the First Amendment. It's never had a legal test, but then most people think it wouldn't stand the test of court. It doesn't really matter, though, when you can whip up the mob, and that's what happened last year. The Congress passed a resolution condemning the New York Times and, uh, for publishing this information. And asking and saying that it expects the cooperation of all organizations, all news organizations, in protecting the president's anti-terror plans. That's the Congress of the United States is sending that message to the press, which is picked up by right-wing talk, the, you know, the echo chamber. And so, for example, one conservative talk show host in San Francisco said on the air that she'd have no problems with the editor of the New York Times being sent to the gas chamber. And as for other editors responsible for leaking national security information, she'd like to see them locked in a steel cage with the family members of slain troop members who would happily de deliver the ultimate punishment of death. Now go back to Turkey for a second and, and imagine what the courtroom scene would be like if one of these journalists were brought into court and prosecuted under the Espionage Act. It's a, it's a very toxic and dangerous 
brew that's, that exists. And it all is sort of connected to general confusion about the very clear terms of US law and protection on freedom of expression. What is Penn doing about it? I mean, just very briefly, I'm gonna hand out a sheet right now that has five things that you can do. Because what we're doing in the United States is trying to connect, you know, not with, uh, with <laughs> uh, trying to connect with everybody in the writing community to, uh, to address ourselves to all of the organs in the United States that can possibly influence um, anything that's happening. And also, the most important thing that we all can do is constantly speak clearly, articulately, and passionately in defense of free expression in the United States and know what the, know what the law says, know how it applies to art, know how it applies to the free press. And, um, and explain to everyone we know all of the time what exactly the First Amendment means in terms of speech that we consider offensive, books that we consider challenging. You know, yes, there are ways of just talking about these things and discussing them, but having you know, crowds in the street that are asking for them to be pulled from the shelves or asking people to be silenced because what they're saying makes us uncomfortable is very clearly not contemplated by US law or our cultural traditions. So I'll just, just very quickly for the five points on the sheet. The first one, as you may know, the Patriot Act, the effort to amend the Patriot Act to protect bookstore and library records continues even though the provision was amended last year to improve it somewhat. So there's instructions on who to write to in the Senate to ask the Senate continue its efforts to make private once again your bookstore and library records. Second, very important, support the federal shield law to protect journalists. Um, 48, 49 states have shield laws protecting journalists. The District of Columbia does, the federal government doesn't. And all these prosecutions of journalists are happening at the federal level. Ask Congress to give a federal law protecting journalists. Please protest the Military Commissions Act, torture, every other sort of violation of human rights norms because for the pen in the United States, we have absolutely no credibility when we complain to a torturing government um, anymore. We have got to change these laws in order to protect writers, not only in the United States, but around the world. The fourth one is a very interesting one. There's a law in Congress to hold internet companies responsible um, and, and to make it criminal for them to turn over information to repressive governments that leads to prosecutions, as it has at least in one case in China. And fifth one, please join Penn, uh, and you'll get more instructions weekly on what you can do. Thank you. I'd like to just add one other comment to what Larry's saying. And in, in when um, we, you talk about these issues, let's do it um, with great clarity, rationality, love, and respect, and not with the acidity and the rancor that um, we're hearing that, that Larry got, because it's very important that we not fall into the we and the they. That we really just, you know, hold forth the ideal that, um, you know, our, our, our laws and our nation often have been able to hold out. Okay. Thank you for tuning in to AWP's podcasts. You have reached the end of the panel discussion, Freedom to Write, hosted by Penn USA and Penn America Centers. To hear more podcasts of AWP selected conference events, please visit our website, www.awprider.org.